This is an ABC podcast. Coming to you from Gadigal Country, another edition of Late Night Live with me, Sarah Dingle. I'm filling in for Philip Adams this evening and for the next couple of weeks, actually, as he lives his best life. Tonight, we're heading to Afghanistan, where so much blood and treasure has been spilled. And yet its people are still facing one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. We'll be talking to not one but two experts who have kept close tabs on the Taliban regime and how the international community has managed or not managed its response to them. And a little later, if you've been following the rise of ChatGPT, thinking to yourself, what fresh horror is this? Well, actually, it's kind of all been done before. As we'll hear, the first international artificial intelligence scare happened not in the 21st century or even the 20th, but in the year 1770. But first, Laura Tingle is away this week, so we welcome back to Late Night Live, Amy Ramikas, political reporter with The Guardian. Amy, hello. Hello, Sarah. We spoke to Laura on the eve of the budget last week, and since then, of course, we've had opposition leader Peter Dutton's reply. Apart from the cost of living crisis, which is, you know, quite a big thing to put to one side, but we'll, we'll do that for now. He also focused on the predicted rise in net overseas migration over the next five years and the pressures that that could bring to bear in policy areas like housing. And I'd like to unpack that a bit with you tonight. Let's start with today's announcement about an agreement to bring in more workers to work in our aged care sector, because that kind of seems to highlight the two issues. What happened today? Well, this has been an issue that has been bubbling along for quite some time. And it's all tied to the reason of why we need to bring in so many migrant workers in the first place. And that's because we do not have enough workers to do the work in Australia, particularly with the care industry. So aged care has been one of those uh, industries where it has been absolutely just impossible to find enough staff. And it's gotten even even worse since the government adopted the Royal Commission uh, uh, regulations and recommendations to have extra staff so that you get extra care minutes, you have a registered nurse on duty, you have more people basically giving more care to your loved ones. And everyone was asking during the election campaign, how are you going to do this? And one of the reasons, one of the uh, solutions was bring in migrant workers. And so today that they've gone, yes, this is what we're going to do. We're going to give priority visa processing to help fill the workforce gaps in the aged care sector. And that's going to start pretty soon. So this is a deal for not quite 600, I think 570 570, people so far. So uh, that's the number we're looking at. But the federal government overall is trying to put a workforce strategy in place to deal with these caring sector shortages. We'll come to housing in a moment. But in his budget reply speech, Peter Dutton said the government's big Australia approach will make the cost of living crisis and inflation worse. What has Peter Dutton had to say on immigration and how that might interact with these two other things? Well, Peter Dutton during the Jobs and Skills Summit, which was late last year, was jumping up and down saying we need to bring more migrant workers into Australia immediately. We need to make this happen because we, you know, people are calling out for workers and they just can't have it and the government has to get moving on it. And that was true because during COVID, we had a lot of people leave Australia, but we didn't have a lot of people enter Australia. And so what Treasury is predicting and what we've seen over the last 12 months is that because of the border closures, we now have a lot of people coming back 
into Australia and they're not necessarily leaving like they usually would and that's because they haven't been here for a couple of years. But interestingly, we're still predicted to have a population smaller than what we would have had if the pandemic wouldn't have happened. So it's not as if people are coming here to live forever. This is indeed a temporary stay. And we've seen a pretty big boost to the numbers because of a lot of international students arriving back in Australia. So we've got a lot of students coming in. We're slowly bringing in more skilled workers to where we want. And we're just seeing a little bit of a bounce because the borders were closed for so long. Peter Dutton has seized on a couple of numbers that were in the last budget and he's stoking the fuels of this big Australia fear and saying, you know, where are these people going to live, which I know we'll talk about in a bit. But it's it's pushing, I think, a lot of fear and a bit of division. But when you break down the numbers, it's not that big a deal. But politically, is there... Uh, hay to be made here. I mean, we know that housing is a massive issue right across the country. There's a rental crisis. Uh, Asking where these people are going to live, even if, you know, these numbers were forecast under the coalition and now they're being forecast under Labor, we will hit 27 million people by June 2024 now. That that bites, doesn't it, amongst the electorate? People go, where are they going to stay? Well, absolutely. But this is also not a problem that has just happened in the last year or even the last couple of years. This has been a problem that has been building in Australia for the last 10 years. And the former government coalition have to take some responsibility for that as well, because we didn't see a lot of movement in housing policy. We haven't seen a lot of movement in it even now, but you do see small little lights around the edges. So National Cabinet are going to be considering a rental freeze or what can happen in terms of rental freezes. We're also seeing a lot of councils, particularly in holiday spots, come up with plans to basically charge people more if they have a vacant home. So if they're just using it for Airbnb and then that sort of thing. We're slowly seeing a shift. Of course, it is not going to change things immediately. The only thing that's going to get things moving is if the states and territories unlock more land and more houses are built pretty much, you know, immediately. Yes, there are a lot of vacant homes in Australia. I think the number was 1 million on the night that the census was taken. Uh, They're not all vacant because of holiday letting and things like that, but there is a lot of movement that can be done there. But in terms of getting people into homes, we need to actually start building affordable housing. And we haven't quite managed to work out quite how to do that just yet. Well, the government is still negotiating the Housing Affordability Future Fund with the Greens. It's yet to get through the Senate. Nothing nothing can happen while it's, you know, in this phase. Greens member for Griffith in Queensland, Max Chandler-Mather, made a passionate speech about housing, which has gone absolutely nuts on TikTok. Let's hear a bit of what he had to say. When you can find $4.2 billion for a surplus, maybe we should be spending $5 billion a year on public and affordable housing. There's not actually any reason we couldn't tax big corporations and make sure we build enough public and affordable housing in this country. The private construction industry is in decline. We could be using those skills and construction materials to build public and affordable housing. We could be freezing rent increases, the same that countries around the world have done and Australia has done before. We could do that. But the reason they don't want to do it is because really they're on the side of the banks and property developers. The fact that that has had, I think, more than a million views, does that suggest that Peter Dutton's onto a bit of a winner with these, you know, concerns about housing? Uh, I think there is absolutely, you know, no one is saying that there's not concerns about housing. And I think it's something that the government has cottoned on to as well, because they're suddenly very serious about negotiating with the Greens over their housing fund, which, as you said, has stalled in the Senate. And Peter Dutton, you know, realises that there is political gold to be mined here. But Peter Dutton also falls down when it comes to solutions for what needs to be done. I mean, when the housing fund was first floated, the coalition said, we don't support it because it's inflationary. Now they're saying they don't support it because it's not building enough houses. So I think people are sick of political games when it comes to this stuff and they just want solutions. And the Greens have been offering up solutions. Whether or not the government 
government agrees with them is one thing, but the Greens have identified, and they did it long before all of this became a political issue. They identified that people were being locked out of housing, not just in the cities, but in the regions and the rural areas as well. It is almost impossible to find a rental in this country. And if you are on welfare, if you are on on the minimum wage, if you are a single parent, if you are an older person, it's even more difficult for you to find a rental and it's becoming increasingly difficult to find a share house that will suit your needs as well. So the Greens have been on to something for quite some time and I think you're starting to see the government clock on and go, oh wow, this is something that we need to take quite seriously. Because it's really interesting how uh, Max's speech has taken off on TikTok. Because I think a lot of the time in Canberra, people get so caught up in the politics and is this a winning move and is that a winning move? And, you know, the government's being so clever blocking this and everyone's drawn line in the sand. But then you have this direct speech to your constituents or to people who just want to hear your message and you see that sort of response. And that's what social media does. It takes politics to the people and says, this is what is happening. What do you think about it? And I think there have been quite a few politicians and journalists who have been quite taken aback by the response to that speech. Mm, And taking notes too. Who knew that the Senate Mm -hmm. chamber was so uniquely suited to the TikTok format? Um, (laughs) (laughs) We should say that the Housing Affordability Future Fund, the thing that is currently stuck in the Senate, is a plan for 30,000 houses, which Mm -hmm. is not going to be enough. I think Not a lot, no. <laughs> um, but t- when Treasurer Jim Chalmers was interviewed on Insiders yesterday, he said much of the issue around housing rests also with the housing and homelessness agreement with the states. And he hinted that the government might be prepared to throw more money at that. Are they reading the room here? What would that mean? That would mean that you would get more public housing which is something that everyone is in agreement that we need. I think last time I looked, there was about 160,000 people on the public housing wait list. And that's not even the people who are waiting to get on the public housing list. So it is a huge problem, particularly in places like Tasmania, where there is a the whole nation is in a housing crisis, but Tasmania is really, really suffering at the moment. And, you know, it is absolutely heartbreaking to see that in a rich country, we have got people living in cars and in tents because we just cannot give them homes, which just seems absolutely ridiculous. So giving more money to the states through these agreements does mean that hopefully we will get more people into public housing. And if you get more people into public housing, then then that can free up affordable housing for people who can afford to pay a little bit more than people who are in public housing, which is part of what this government is trying to do. They're sort of saying in a lot of different areas, we can't fund everything and we can't do everything. But if we start creating uh, a little bit of stretch or a little bit of room in other areas, so it's not just one thing that everyone is relying on, we might actually begin to see some change. But that, of course, means that the states have to also get a wriggle on because it takes them so long to build public housing and it, and it really shouldn't. Some of the states are looking at whether they can repurpose existing homes into public housing to get that moving a little bit quicker. But then that also comes down to communities accepting that, yes, there may be public and affordable housing in your area. It might mean that you're going to have to get used to subdivisions where there haven't been subdivisions because as Australia changes, the way that we live has to change as well and you can't just lock up neighbourhoods and throw away the key and say, well, good luck to you finding a place to live. Speaking of um, not in my backyard, uh, this is a bit of a, a different not in my backyard movement, but in Tasmania on the weekend, there was a huge protest over the building of a new football stadium in the middle of this housing crisis. Jackie Lambie, of course, said, uh, fronted the protest and said the government can, quote, stick it up your bum. Uh, and now we've seen two Liberal MPs in the state of Tasmania resign over the issue, um, uh, move to the, from, resign from the government, which is the last Liberal government in the country. Everything's coming to a head, isn't it? Is, is this AFL stadium pledge becoming political poison? 
Uh, I think it's been political poison for some time because Rebecca White, the Labor leader, is also in a bit of a bind because she's been one of the biggest people who have been against this stadium. And then the federal leader, Anthony Albanese, comes down and goes, hey, guess what? We're going to fund this stadium. And that creates a bit of an issue for state Labor as well, because it doesn't seem like there's many people who are in favour of this stadium. Uh, And it is because, as you say, there is a huge housing crisis in Tasmania in the moment, and people would like to be living in houses rather than a stadium. But it looks like the AFL is also playing hardball, where they're basically saying, you do not get an AFL team unless you have a stadium. Because I think there were some people who were kind of holding out hope that they could still have the AFL team, but they didn't need to get the stadium. And the AFL is basically briefing out that, no, that is impossible. That is not going to be the case. You get the stadium, you get the AFL team, or you get nothing. And so that does create a bit of an issue because then there's a divide of people who want an AFL team and everything that that can bring for the state and everything that a lot of people have worked very hard for in Tasmania. But then it's just the timing of it because how do you justify spending hundreds of million dollars in a stadium precinct when you are in A, a cost of living crisis and B, your people are not living in homes. They are in tents on the street. And hanging over all of this is the stage three tax cuts, of course, which the government (laughs) is still being asked about on a daily basis. As they should be. (laughs) Amy Ramikas, thank you so much for joining us. Amy Ramikas is Guardian Australia's political reporter. Coming up, life for people in a country decimated by both war and sanctions as we head to Afghanistan. Sarah Dingle with you this evening, filling in for Philip Adams for the next couple of weeks here on LNL. Just months after the Taliban seized Afghanistan in August 2021, the United Nations Security Council imposed sanctions against members of the Islamic fundamentalist regime. There are exemptions to provide humanitarian assistance for the people of Afghanistan, but the country itself is still in dire straits. Girls have been banned from high school and university, and women are banned from working for both international NGOs and now the United Nations as well. Security continues to deteriorate with various opposition groups and a local branch of ISIS fighting the regime. What looms next for the troubled nation one can only guess, and also the potential for conflict in the wider region. Just after the Taliban took control in 2021, Late Night Live spoke to a group of Afghan experts about how the new regime was likely to govern. Tonight, some of those panel members are back to discuss the challenges almost two years on. Ibrahim Bahis is an analyst with the International Crisis Group, specialising in the Taliban and Afghanistan. He regularly travels to Afghanistan, where he conducts research throughout the country. And Dr Ashley Jackson is co-director of the Centre for the Study of Armed Groups at the Overseas Development Institute and the author of Negotiating Survival, Civilian Insurgent Relations in Afghanistan. Dr Jackson lived in Afghanistan for many years, but she joins us tonight from Nairobi. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Ibrahim, I'd like to start with you. Last time you were on the program, the Taliban had only just taken control of the country. Since then, you've made regular trips to Afghanistan. We've heard a lot about banning women from work and girls from school, which we will get to in a moment. But first of all, how much have things changed on the ground? Uh, Thank you very much uh, for having me. Uh, Afghanistan, I would say, is currently suffering from twin crises, which uh, I think you alluded to in your introduction. On the one hand, we have, with the Taliban in power, we have uh, an economic and humanitarian crisis in the country that has many factors, including COVID, for example, the the withdrawal of uh, international aid to the country, uh, the imposition of sanctions and whatnot. 
On the other hand, we also have the Taliban who are uh, increasingly implementing uh, discriminatory policies and uh, uh, that also have an impact on the economic growth and recovery of the country. So I would say it's a crisis of both a humanitarian crisis as well as a governance crisis in the country. Ashley, the international community has imposed sanctions against the regime in Afghanistan. Nine billion uh, US in assets of the Afghan Central Bank were frozen. Seven billion of those were in the US themselves. Can you explain what has happened there and the impact that the freezing of that money has had on Afghanistan? I'm so glad you asked about that because this is incredibly complicated but incredibly important to understand. So two things happened. You've just mentioned the seizure of the central bank assets and that kicked in because of sanctions, right, which are incredibly complicated uh, and very hard to undo. And no one anticipated the Taliban coming to power before those sanctions were removed. So what happened when they did come to power was effectively the international community, this legal framework kicked in and took control of their central bank, which took away the government's ability to regulate the economy. Inflation went out of control. There was almost no liquidity. No Afghans who had savings accounts or things could get much money out of the bank. People panicked. The prices of basic goods like flour and oil skyrocketed. I mean, 10, 20 times what they were um, prior to the Taliban takeover. And because there was no central bank to regulate anything, you know, the government couldn't couldn't fight back in a way, couldn't preserve um preserve prices or or inject liquidity into the economy and people began to panic and that precipitated the humanitarian crisis we're seeing now. A second thing I'd briefly mention is that 75% of the budget of the government before the Taliban takeover was aid. So civil servant salaries, all these kinds of things, that was aid, which stopped almost overnight. And that had a compounding effect of, you know, if you were a teacher, you didn't have a salary anymore. Um, that further exacerbated inflation. And so the humanitarian crisis we're seeing is a result of all these economic policies, largely. And what, what aid agencies have had to do to deal with that humanitarian crisis is ship plane loads full of cash into the country. Um, so because of sanctions, because of everything else, there's almost no banking system. So if you want to help Afghans, and this is a huge humanitarian response, it's coming from plane loads full of cash, which is, of course, immensely unsustainable and problematic. But yeah, so I'm trying to boil that complexity down for you. You did a great job. Uh, It is an extraordinary situation. Ibrahim, what is security like on the ground now? There are a number of groups sort of jockeying for position against the Taliban regime. Tell us about that. Uh, So uh, before the Taliban took over, Afghanistan was considered the deadliest conflict in the world. With the Taliban coming into power, a lot of that violence has dropped quite tremendously. Uh, A part of the reason for that is that with the collapse of the previous Republican order, there isn't really a lot of credible resistance to the Taliban. Having said that, uh, uh, Afghanistan is a country that's experienced four decades of war and uh, you know, to imagine that it'll immediately move to a post-conflict uh, environment is, I think, quite uh, a difficult prediction to make. At this point in time, we have uh, several low-level, low-tempo insurgencies against the Taliban. I'll, I'll divide those into two groups. One grouping is uh, armed opposition groups that were previously allied with the Republican political order. And the other one is uh, Islamic militants who are opposed to the Taliban. So in the first grouping, you have uh, groups such as the Northern Resistance Front uh, who uh, come from uh, groups that were fighting the Taliban in the 1990s. And in the second grouping, you have uh, groups such as the Islamic State's local branch. Uh, When we look at the trend since the Taliban took over, as I said, with the Taliban's takeover, the violence level dropped quite significantly. Since then, they have kind of peaked, ebbed and flowed. But in general, the trend has been a level of containment. But I think a lot of that really has to do with the humanitarian uh, economic situation in the country. I think that the country still remains, there's a potential for things to boil, uh, uh, especially as economic desperation begins to take hold. I think it increases inten- incentives for people to look for 
alternative means of uh, making livelihood uh, and, and joining an armed group or, or some kind of armed resistance against the government, whoever that may be, is uh, has, has historically been one of those pathways for the uh, increasingly unemployed and desperate uh, youth. Mm. So much of what the Taliban has, I suppose, been offering uh, international observers is we can control these militant groups and they will not encroach on your borders. How good are their guarantees on that? Because there have already been some incidents in Pakistan, haven't there? Mm. When the Taliban were in power in the 1990s, one of the factors that made the group so unpopular both internationally but also regionally was the fact that they were harboring a number of transnational groups. Uh, You had Chechnyan rebels, you had anti-Indian Kashmir fighters, uh, you know, a whole uh, alphabet soup of groups were within Afghanistan and the Taliban were refusing to crack down on them. Uh, Al-Qaeda, when they continuously carried out against uh, attacks against US targets in Africa and elsewhere, the Taliban refused to acknowledge that the, the group was using Afghanistan as a staging basis. And that was one of the reasons uh, that precipitated ultimately with 9-11 and what we saw in the last two decades. However, over the last 10 years, I would say, or at least since the Taliban opened their diplomatic presence in Doha in around 2013, the group, one of their consistent claims has been that they are a group that will be able to provide security to Afghanistan and additionally be able to prevent armed groups from using the country to launch attacks across the border. That was one of their primary commitments in the Doha. And besides that as well, every time their communication to the outside world print pretty much premises on this fact. A, that they are a security force that can provide security to Afghanistan, a country riddled by four decades of conflict. And B, they are a group that has the capacity and ability to rein in transnational militant groups from being able to launch uh, attacks from Afghanistan uh, across the region. As you alluded to, and both those are under question. There, there is a, a level of pessimism uh, when it comes to the strike on Zawahiri in uh, last year in Kabul, uh, in a safe house inside Kabul, kind of undermined the whole uh, uh, whatever. Th- trust there must, might have been in terms of the Taliban's um, uh, sincerity in carrying out these commitments. Mm. At the same time, uh, security-wise, uh, the, the ISKP has been quite um, uh, strategic in the sense of targeting foreigners and you know diplomats and even carrying out some attacks regionally they've carried out attacks in Iran and uh, did a few small sporadic cross-border shellings into Tajikistan and Uzbekistan to try to undermine the Taliban's claim. And uh, uh, more importantly, I think there's a a level of considerable uh, uh, skepticism regarding the Taliban's willingness to rein in some of the transnational groups that are present in the country. Mm. At this point, I think that many in the region, especially, I would say, I would add is uh, they they remain, while they're sceptical, they're still willing to engage with the Taliban on the possibility that the group will continue to rein in to some level these groups. But uh, uh, it really is a question of uh, degrees at this point. And I think the scepticism continues to increase uh, over time. It is Sarah Dingle here with you on Late Night Live, filling in for Philip Adams. Ashley, we all know that girls have been banned from school. Women cannot work. Uh, this affects women who even work for international NGOs and also the UN. Is there more the West could be doing at this point to help untie this this knot and ease some of the pressures on women and girls? So absolutely. And again, I'm really glad that you asked that. So the picture is a little bit more nuanced. So if you're a woman helping the UN deliver healthcare, you can still work. Um, there are carve outs or exemptions for certain kinds of work that the Taliban sees as appropriate or somehow acceptable for women to be doing and healthcare, delivering babies, all those kinds of things, some forms of education and so on. Um, as well. There are also women who run businesses. Women are in the security forces, oddly enough, uh, not many of them, but there are still women in these pockets of society. Um, how long that remains uh, to be the case is, is unclear, but there's still women fighting and, and doing things. There are women, you know, illegally running underground um, schools, running battered women's shelters. Um, if there's one thing 
that Afghan women will do. It is that they will fight. They will find ways to resist. They may not always be marching in the streets, but they're finding ways to subvert these things that the Taliban is, is issuing. And I think what the West can do, you know, it's not really about these huge public statements condemning the Taliban's behavior. That doesn't matter. That actually doesn't do anything. If anything, um, it forces the Taliban to dig its, its heels in. What we really need to be doing is finding ways to support women in the country and finding more creative ways of doing that. And I was just in Afghanistan um, a couple of months ago for the first time, and I was so surprised by, you know, all these women doing really courageous things, but not receiving the international funding and support um, that, that is available to kind of big UN agencies. These are really small community-based organizations and things like that. And those are the women that we need to support because they're the ones on the ground and able to figure out how to work around these Taliban restrictions and they'll keep the girls' schools going. And that's what we really need to see happen. Dr. Ashley Jackson, thank you so much. And Ibrahim Bahis. Ibrahim Bahis is an Afghanistan expert who works for the International Crisis Group. And Dr. Ashley Jackson is co-director of the Centre for the Study of Armed Groups at the Overseas Development Institute and the author of Negotiating Survival, Civilian Insurgent Relations in Afghanistan. I'm Sarah Dingle with you while Philip is taking a short break and coming up, the original artificial intelligence scare, the chess robot, that's right, chess robot, that fooled the Western world 250 years ago. intelligence has been all over the news lately. Just last week, Google launched its own AI-powered search tool to rival hugely successful AI programs like ChatGPT. You might think AI is all very new and exciting or maybe just plain terrifying, but experiments in artificial intelligence and our anxieties about its potential actually go way back in time, right back to the late 1700s. The story of AI begins with a bizarre chess-playing robot, because of course it does, known as the Mechanical Turk, a machine which stunned the world and defeated some of the most famous people in history. But this robot wasn't all that it seemed. Here to tell the tale is Toby Walsh, Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the University of New South Wales. Toby, please introduce us to the chess-playing robot known as the Mechanical Turk. When was it built and what did it look like? It was built in 1770, and it was quite impressive. It was a life-sized humanoid robot, and it was, he was sitting cross-legged behind a, a large chest, some one metre long and about half a metre wide. And on top of that chest, uh, chest was a chessboard, um, and the mechanical Turk, he was, he was dressed in a Ottoman robes and had a large turban and a black moustache and grey eyes, and he would pick up the chess pieces and move them on the chessboard and play you a game of chess. And this was uh, made for the Empress of Austria, but it didn't stay in Austria. The Turk moved around, didn't he? Yes, he went on a, a, a international tour that took in um, the uh, United States, took in many places um, around Europe, um, playing all comers and frequently, in fact, I think almost always, winning. Um, you could open the chest and they would show the intricate clockwork machinery inside that was supposedly powering his chess playing. And were people fooled? Were they scared? Were they in awe? What, what did they think of this thing? Well, it was quite a hit um, and so was actually able to play um, lots of very eminent and famous opponents, including... Um, a match in 1809 against uh, one of the greatest tacticians of his time, uh, Emperor Napoleon, who was at the height of his his powers. Um, and it was quite an interesting match at the Habsburg Palace in, in Vienna. So tell us, tell us about this showdown, because Napoleon, of course, prided himself on his chess skills uh, and his reputation had a bit riding on this game. What happened? 
They did. I mean, this is the game of kings. Um, and Napoleon, a, 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 an amazing tactician who had whose grand homme had had dominated um the uh, the Europe at the time, and he was known for his shock and awe tactics. Um, but he was to receive some of his own uh, punishment in this match. Um, and very quickly he was losing. Um, and very quickly, uh, supposedly, according to the reports, he started cheating, <laughs> putting the chess pieces in different places. Uh, the mechanical Turk would put the chess pieces back uh, where they were supposed to be. And eventually, um, just in frustration at the Napoleon's cheating, um, just um, and was so far ahead, just brushed all the pieces of the chessboard aside. <laughs> An early introduction to the world of humans. Um, so uh, the Mechanical Turk obviously had a very storied career, but eventually it wound up in a museum where it was eventually destroyed in a fire. And it was only after it was gone that a dirty truth emerged about the chess robot. What was it? Yes, the dirty truth was that, uh, of course, it was completely fake. It wasn't. It wasn't an artificial intelligence. It wasn't the very first artificially intelligent chess-playing robot. It was actually there was a person concealed in the cabinet that was making all the moves. And how did people not know that? Well, maybe those were more naive times. But equally, I think there was. There, you know, there is that fascination that we're we're going to be able to build intelligent machines, and it's only a matter of time before we have them. Well, there must have been some suspicions because there were also like some uh, copycats of the Mechanical Turk, weren't there? In in other countries, um, with the same sort of quirk, if you will. There were after after the after the Mechanical Turk was destroyed, and maybe a little bit of the secret was out of the bag. There were a number of, of copycats. There was Ajib, which was an Egyptian chess-playing automaton, which was made in 1868 and was exhibited in Crystal Palace, Coney Island, and various places around Europe, um, and again, yeah, concealed a person inside. Um, and then there was Mephisto, which was rather a devilish-looking chess-playing robot, which was made in 1876. Um, that actually won a chess, a human chess tournament, um, except, you know, like Ajib, um, and the mechanical Turk, that was also a fake. And in this case, they actually used uh, electric and mat- mechanical means so that someone in another room could actually move the the robot's arms and move the chess, place, chess pieces from afar. Oh, very sophisticated. Um, Toby, it occurs to me that in order to fake this, you must have to be a really good human chess player. Who were these, these, uh, these fakers? Do we know? Uh, we're not exactly sure, although there are various uh, suspicions as to some pretty um, pretty good chess players who were um, paid um, to... It must be quite an ignoble. I mean, you had to hide before everyone arrived in the cabinet, and it wasn't a very large amount of space, and then they <laughs> sit it out afterwards. And there, there are supposedly some chess masters who might have been paid quite considerable sums because this was quite these these chess uh, robots um attracted a very large audience paying audience and so so it's actually quite a money making device well you're sitting there in your tiny space wondering how your life got to this well <laughs> after the mechanical turk and his imitators shall we say eventually in the 20th century people actually started trying to build a machine which could genuinely play chess, a mechanical Turk for real. But why chess? Why are we obsessed with giving giving machines the superpower of chess? Well, right at the start of artificial intelligence, in the, in the early 50s and 60s, when people began using computers, computers became common and, and we started thinking, well, what could we do? What, what intelligent things could we do? Well, of course, playing chess is generally considered to be something that largely is a game restricted, a game of intelligence, a game restricted to quite smart people. Um, and so it was, uh, and the nice thing about it is the rules are well defined. So, And it's easy to know whether you're doing well or not. You can just play against the computer. And if if the computer beats you, well, you know that the computer's doing quite well. So it was actually considered to be quite a good test to begin with of whether we were going to succeed at artificial intelligence. And then we did in 1997, about two centuries um, after the Mechanical Turk, IBM manages to crack the code. Tell me the story of Deep Blue. 
Yes, Deepu is the name of the computer program. Uh, IBM assembled a, a quite a significantly large team of researchers um, to try to take on the world champion of chess. And at the time, it was Gary Kasparov, who um, was generally considered, I think, to be one of the chess, not only the world champion, but one of the best chess players to ever lived. He was the youngest playing world champion when he took the crown as 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 the best player of chess on the planet, and he was then the longest living um, world champion in 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 recent memory. Um, but he had the misfortune to be alive at the time when computers and computer programs playing chess were good enough to be able to beat him. So he 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 won the first competition in 96 and then IBM asked for a rematch in 97 and spent more time improving the program um and so it was that he faced off it was a pretty close match it was a best of 6 um it was uh even ev- evenly scored on the on the first 5 games and so it all came down to who was going to win or whether it was going to be a draw in the final match um and deep blue managed to win and Gary Kasparov uh, was was somewhat taken aback um, it was rather sad for him but he he did say this wonderful quote at the at the end when he was interviewed afterwards by the New York Times he said i could smell a new form of intelligence across the table from me wow obviously knowing that there was more to come he he would not be the last to to experience that even though deep blue was a chess genius i guess we can say of a computer you say this kind of artificial intelligence is still based in deception what do you mean by that well it's, it's not solving the way that humans solve it i mean it's very it's very clear from us from a psychological perspective that Deep Blue was using essentially the brute force of the computer to to consider way more moves than a human could ever possibly than, than a human could ever possibly consider, um, and it wasn't solving the game in the subtle way that humans clearly solve the game, um, and so we're often taken in, and we're often taken in. Um, well, if we met a human who could play chess well, we'd think, oh, well, they're a pretty intelligent person. Probably they can do lots of other intelligent things. Well, this machine, this computer, Deep Blue, that plays chess, can only play chess. It couldn't do anything else. I mean, even even if you change the rules very slightly, I mean, uh, there's a thing called you know killer chess where you you have to lose your pieces as quickly as possible, not keep them as long as possible. <laughs> they wouldn't be able to play killer chess. Um, to try and lose as quickly as possible. Um, so it's a very brittle, very different type of intelligence to human intelligence, very artificial intelligence compared to human intelligence. So when we talk about artificial, with the stress on the artificial intelligence, we often come back to something called the Turing test, which predates the event of Deep Blue. What was the Turing test? So the Turing test is named in honour of Alan Turing, who actually proposed it. He called it the imitation game, but it's now become known as the, as the Turing test. Alan Turing, of course, was the father, in many respects, of the computer who was working during the Second World War at Bletchley Park, where they built the very first computers. And he wrote in 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 the early 50s what is generally considered to be the very first scientific paper about artificial intelligence, saying, well, what can we do with these machines? Can we do something interesting? Can we, could we build intelligence in them? Um, and he looked at that question and he he said, well, the, the problem is that intelligence isn't very well defined. So how are we going to un- know that we've succeeded in building some sort of intelligence in machines? And he, he proposed this test, which is now known as the Turing test, which is you have a conversation with the computer. And if you can't tell the computer apart from a human having a similar sort of conversation, then you might as well say that it is intelligent. That feels a little slippery. Like, I get why he would say that, but it feels like he's skipping some key steps there in determining whether something is, in fact, intelligent. Yes. I, I, I did think today that we think it really is uh, the the everything you need to do to test intelligence. It's certainly a stepping stone, I think, to intelligence. But there are many other facets to intelligence than just being able to have a decent conversation with someone. But it's, if you can't have a decent conversation with someone, then I think it's clear that you are particularly intelligent. You have mastered language. So flash forward to now, can programs like ChatGPT pass the Turing test? 
they pretty much can pass the Turing test. I, I actually took the questions that Alan Turing wrote in that very first scientific paper as illustrative of what the sorts of questions you would ask a computer to in the process of doing a Turing test. And ChatGPT answered those questions very competently. Um, and I think it would be hard to distinguish what ChatGPT said from what a human said. So, so yes, uh, they have. But of course, that doesn't mean that ChatGPT is intelligent. And it just means that it's, it's only on the way to being intelligent, I think. It's not just polite rejoinders that it can come up with, though. It can do a lot of things. It can write comedy, even though the comedy may not be very good, and uh, all sorts of things, poems and songs, can't it? It could do lots of, yes, lots of things. Some, some unexpected. It can write computer code. It can suggest a shopping list for you. It can propose ideas for a birthday party for your 12-year-old. Um, it can write poetry in the style of Shakespeare. Um, yes, it is um, quite competent. I mean, it's had pretty much the whole of the internet poured into it, and it's pretty good at reproducing the sorts of things that you see on the internet. When you were doing your Turing test with ChatGPT, you also managed to confuse it a bit. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, it, it, it certainly is easy to confuse it. It certainly doesn't always say the truth. And, and indeed, there are, there are simple examples you can give. You can give it that will demonstrate that it fails to reason very well. I actually asked it to count the number of zeros and ones in a list and it and it failed to get up to five so it's, it's something that a you know a child would easily have done um so yes there are some surprising blind spots in it uh, there are also troubling biases and uh it sometimes will say things that are racist or sexist or ageist because at the end of the day it's repeating the sorts of things that you can find on the internet that the, the text that it's been trained on. Modern AI isn't just good at imitating racists and sexists. Um, it's also good at imitating more abstract things like sentience and free will and, and feelings. Can you tell us about Google's LAMDA chatbot? Yes. So Google's answer to ChatGPT is a, is a large language model called Lambda. Um, which was released um, in the middle of last year. And there was a big hoo-ha because there was a Google engineer, uh, Blake Limone, who was playing with it, who claimed um, that it was sentient, that it, that it was that it had the consciousness of, of, a, of an eight or nine-year-old. Um, he caused quite a bit of controversy, he ended up being um, being put on gardening leave by Google and, and eventually was sacked by Google for, for having brought the company into uh, disrepute um, because of this claim, because as far as we can tell, it's not sentient. It's not conscious like us. It's not, it doesn't have the right sort of stuff to be sentient. But it says, if you ask it questions about, you know, whether it has feelings and whether it's hurt or whether it whether it's aware of whether it has um, some sort of theory of mind. It says all the right things, but just saying the right things doesn't mean that you are sentient. It doesn't mean. But, you know, it does raise these difficult, troubling questions, which is, will machines at some time become sentient? Will we actually build um, machines that have consciousness, that have uh, feelings, that have emotions? Um, hopefully we won't, because if we do... We'll have to start giving them rights. I mean, anything that, and anything, anything that does have sentience, we tend to, um, we tend to don't like to see them suffering, whether they be animals or other humans, and therefore we we give them um, naturally rights. And so, um, but but we do have to entertain the possibility that maybe one day we will build machines that have something like sentience, like like awareness, and 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 we'll be able to suffer pain and the like. And in which case, then we're going to have to treat them in quite a quite a different way than we do today i mean i can after this interview i can go back to my robot laboratory and i can i can take my robot apart diode by diode and no one has to care about that because it's just a machine but if they do become conscious or sentient then then we will have to start worrying about these difficult questions if these artificial intelligence uh, machines are currently just parroting a kind of mishmash of everything that 
everyone has ever said or typed um, and we are being deceived by it, what can we actually do about that? Yeah, this is something that does worry me quite considerably, that we are going to be increasingly deceived by the machines. They're going to increasingly pretend, like in the Turing test, to be human. Um, that's going to make them more engaging and, and, and more attractive for us to, to work with. But but equally, we're, we're easily fooled and we're quite, we're, we're quite accommodating of that. As, as humans, we're, we're quite gullible. We're quite... We we attribute feeling and meaning to things quite quite quickly. It's quite a human trait, and so we might end up in in quite a quite a dystopian world where it's hard to tell the real from the fake, from the the real from the artificial. Um, how are we going to prevent that? I think well, it's a, I don't think there's one simple solution. I think it's a variety of things. What one is that we're going to have to be um, educated to the possibility that that just because you know a human sounding voice rings you up it might be a fake voice it might be a computer talking to you because computers can can talk very realistically and it and indeed we can clone we can fake someone's voice now with just a few seconds uh, of recording of their voice and and come across sounding like people already sadly people are being scammed by people being rung up to by their loved ones or what sounds like their loved ones and it turns out it isn't so i think um we have to we can have to raise our, our guard a little bit more. But equally, I think also we're going to have to be protected from this and um, by means of regulation. Indeed, I proposed the idea um, proposed the idea um, half a dozen years ago now that maybe we need some red flags, that we need um, artificial content or, or artificial robots to, to identify themselves. And um, we need a red flag like there were red flags in front of automobiles and the invention of, of, of the automobile 100 years ago to warn us there's a strange technology that we should be aware of coming coming down the road. We need perhaps red flags um, that tell us this is not a computer that's now talking to you. It's a, it, so there's not a person that's talking to you. It's a computer. Um, this this video of someone talking to you is is actually not a person. It's a, it's a, it's a deep fake video. We, we may, may need to be um, told these things to protect us from being deceived. Toby, thank you for that. My pleasure. So fascinating. Toby Walsh is a professor of artificial intelligence at the University of New South Wales. He's written a piece on the mechanical Turk and the deception of artificial intelligence for the Griffith Review. On our next, Bruce Shapiro joins us for an update on US politics. We'll meet the South African female journalists reporting on crime and corruption despite attempts to shut them down. Plus, from cave art to K-pop, we'll look at how cultural borrowing has occurred between nations and throughout history. See you then. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.